So uh, late last week, my son Matthew and I, he's eight, we filled out our NCAA basketball tournament brackets. Anybody do that at all? Anybody into that this year? No, not too many. There was like one at the nine o'clock, like me and Ryan Bidler. I just preached to Ryan the whole morning because my whole intro is dependent on this and apparently it's not catching on. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was like, uh, we've been, we haven't done it in years, but um, I haven't done it in years. But so Matthew and I, we, we <laughs> and it's all, it's actually, it's apparent that I have no idea what I'm doing in terms of picking basketball teams because it, my bracket's like hilarious. It's completely busted. I think three of the four teams I thought would go to the final four, I picked to go to the final four, they're out. Matthew, he's doing great. I think Matthew's like got four of the four still in there. So we've been talking about basketball, watching basketball, going outside and playing basketball. Josh, what's the best basketball movie ever made? Hoosiers. Absolutely. See, you don't even hesitate. That's what I thought. I did not prime him or Ryan in the same answer both times, right? <laughs> so there's this great movie. It's from, the, it's from 1986. Uh, Gene Hackman's this basketball coach. It's kind of a redemption story. It's kind of a, it's kind of a come from behind uh, Cinderella story. It's your pretty predictable high school sports narrative. Um, but uh, it's, an, it's really good. At least uh, it's been fun uh, times we've watched it before. So there's this scene in Hoosiers where the coach, Gene Hackman, he comes up, he's arguing a call with the referee and he's all bombastic and excited and this. And then under his breath, he says, throw me out of the game. Do you remember that part of that movie? He's like, throw me out of the game. And the ref's like, what? And he's like going crazy. And then he's like, throw me out of the game. And the ref's like, all right, he's out of here. Right. And, and you're like, what? This is surprising behavior. It's not what you expect him to do. But, but if you're watching the movie, you're like, Oh, look what he's doing. Like there's a bigger purpose behind this, behind this little momentary, like throw me out of the game thing. He's trying to accomplish more than is apparent in the moment. He's trying, he's got a bigger mission in mind. He's got bigger restoration in mind than just winning this single basketball game. And so he's going to do something that is unusual, that is unexpected in order to accomplish this, this bigger this bigger purpose. And um, essentially today, we're looking at a series of stories from Jesus's life, three stories specifically, back-to-back-to-back stories where Jesus's behavior is, is a bit surprising. It's not what we expect him to do, but there's a bigger purpose behind each of these scenes or stories in his life. And what's interesting about the passage today is Jesus actually reveals that purpose to us at the end of the stories. Often, we're left to kind of sit back and go, oh my goodness, what do I do with this? How do I respond to this? And there will be some of that today, but actually Jesus reveals his purpose at the end of these stories. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it to you right now. It's this. Jesus says at the end of these three stories, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's his point. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And to be clear, since I'll say that phrase a lot today, sacrifice in this sense does not refer to a sacrificial attitude, a sacrificial heart, a sacrificial acts of kindness. He's talking specifically about a sacrifice from a Jewish context, like you must bring an alt- to the altar a lamb of God, you must bring an, a bull, you must offer the first fruits of your, of your, uh, um, your harvest as a sacrifice. You know that in, the, in Judaism, there's this elaborate sacrificial system, and so people are instructed to bring sacrifices always to the Lord. Uh, and this is the sense in which the word should be understood by Jesus, in the sense that a sacrifice is a religious duty, 
in the sense that a, that a sacrifice here is a good deed that is required by your religion. And Jesus is saying, and he's quoting Hosea, which is the passage I started our gathering with today. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not that kind of sacrifice. And Jesus is saying this as a way of saying this. It's the heart behind the thing, not the thing itself that matters the most. In other words, I don't want your good deeds if they're just good deeds. I don't want your financial gifts if, it's, if they're just financial gifts. I don't want your regular church attendance if you're trying to like, you know, fill in the boxes and do the right thing. I don't want you just to check the boxes. I want you to genuinely love. I want you to authentically be devoted to, to God. I want you to actually have authentic compassion for other people. Jesus is about the real deal behind the expression. And apparently, this is not an easy thing for us to learn because Hosea talks about it. Before him, Isaiah talked about it. Again, now Jesus is talking about it. Nor is it a quick thing to learn because Jesus says, and I'm not aware of another time when Jesus ramps up like this, but Jesus says, go and learn what this means. In other words, not just do this now, which is often what we are kind of left with in his instruction, just go do this. But here he doesn't say that. He's go and learn this. This is going to be a journey, a process. This might take you a while. This is a multi-year uh, program, right? So let's look at three more demonstrations of the kingdom of God crashing into earth. This is Christ's ultimate vision for the world beginning to take shape. And be but actually, before we get to these three stories, let me invite you to recognize a couple of dynamics. First, I want you to notice in the stories that we read that those who are receiving the love and the power of God are on the other side. They're like on the other side of the tracks. They're not the ones you expect. They're not the in crowd. They don't fit the norm. These stories don't quite fit the expectations uh, of, of the common, right? There are social problems in these stories. There are cultural problems. For some, they're getting hung up on theological problems, and this is important to recognize this, friends, because often people will say to me, I don't really feel very comfortable in church. I don't really feel like I fit in. Sometimes people will say, I don't really feel like I'm part of this group. I don't really get it in a way that, you know, this isn't normal for me. Well, if you feel like that, you need to know you're in really good company because Jesus is often, in fact, I would say usually expressing the love and the power of God to people who are on the outside of the circle. Right, who peep, you could even argue that Jesus prefers the misfit, that Jesus has this preferential treatment to those who just aren't quite in. So I hope you notice that. And the second thing I hope you notice in these stories is that these demonstrations of love and power of God through Christ, uh, that, um, that when they affect real life, they create all kinds of adversity for Christ, all kinds of adversity for Christ. Jesus is performing miracles, but he's not cheered um, because something in each one of these stories is not what the people expect. Because Jesus is interrupting people's paradigms, he is, he is criticized. Because Jesus crosses lines, uh, his character is questioned. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth, but he's not embraced for it. He's asked to leave because of it. Jesus is unwanted and untrusted and unaccepted by a whole lot of people because he's breaking captives free, and that messes people's heads up. He's healing the broken, which sounds wonderful, but it's messy. He's forgiving sins. He's calling sinners to leave their lives of sin and to join him in restoration towards holiness, and that's a really challenging thing. So this is important because perhaps you feel like 
The hard part of your life right now, the part of your life that is, um, seems to be sort of stirring up adversity, is directly connected with your following Christ, with your faith, with your desire to obey Jesus. And I'm trying to say you shouldn't be surprised if that's the case. We've been sold a version of Christianity that goes something like, if you trust Jesus with your life, everything's going to be wonderful, and you're almost going to have this wind at your back. That's just simply not always the way it is. If you're finding that the point in your life where obedience to God is required is the difficult part of your life, well, of course, you shouldn't be surprised at that. So recognize that as we get into these stories and see that as as, uh, people experience the coming kingdom... There will be messiness, right? As the old is replaced by the new, of course it's challenging. Of course it's, it's, it's difficult. So let's look at these three stories, remembering that at the end of the three stories, Jesus says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, the last time I preached, Jesus was in a boat in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a big lake. And uh, he calms the waves and the winds, and his disciples stand back in amazement, and they're like, who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, Matthew, writing the story, continues the very next verse. I'm in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When Jesus arrived at the other side of the lake, the other side, in a region of the Gerardines, or the Gadarenes, sometimes it's Gerasenes. This town is, is, is uh, translated several ways. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So the earliest uh, writings on this story treat this phrase, the other side, both literally and allegorically. Of course, there's another side of the lake. There's a literal other side. But in many other ways, Jesus has gone to the other side, meaning there's all kinds of otherness there. There's all kinds of differences. Uh, The Gadarenes or the Gerasenes is the country of the Gentiles, not the Jewish people. So Jesus and his Jewish disciples roll up, and they're on the other side of the tracks. They're They're in the wrong part of town for them. There's different culture, there's different language, there's different uh, values. And then what they encounter is extremely other. Two demon-possessed men meet them at the dock. Matthew, who's writing the story, says nobody would even stay there. No one would stop there. The boats would like pass that dock and go to the next dock because they'd rather not deal with these people. They look more like animals than men. So they've been living in the tombs, these guys. This is not a modern Western cemetery with nice grass. This is a cave in which you put a decomposing body and these dudes are living in there. The other gospel accounts uh, say that these guys are screaming all night long, cutting themselves with stones. People are trying to chain them. They're breaking chains. So to be clear, these are people who are possessed by demons, evil spiritual beings. And as Jesus' boat pulls up to the dock, here they come, and they're shouting at him, what do you want with us, son of God? It's the demons inside the people who know who Jesus is. They're the ones who are speaking through these people. And the demons asked, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Like, the demons are, like, taunting Jesus. They're like, hey, you're early, You got your timing wrong, Jesus. We still own this place. You can't mess with us now. This is our place. 
They're thinking like the final judgment is the appointed time. What they don't realize is Jesus has come to bring judgment. He is initiating the kingdom of God. He will clarify what is true and what is false. And they're beginning to realize that and they're afraid about it. But they're so prideful that they're still taunting him. They're protesting. They're daring to manipulate Jesus with their voices. There's a fourth century Christian preacher named John Chrysostom. I keep quoting him because he's got really good material on this passage in Matthew. He says this, Jesus had caught them, meaning the demons, in the act of perpetrating horrors so incurable and lawless and deforming and punishing his creatures, meaning these men, in every way and because their crimes were so excessive, they believed that Jesus would not delay in punishing them. In other words, the demons realize they've been caught in the act of perverting God's beloved children and messing with the lives of people who are made in God's image. But they're so prideful that their response is defiant. First, they try to tell Jesus, oh, you can't touch us. But then he knows that's a lie. They know that's a lie. And so they try another route. Look at verse 30. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down a steep bank into the lake and died in the water. I always feel kind of bad for the pigs at this point in the story. <laughs> I raised pigs when I was a kid. I actually kind of became... Like, I liked the pigs. I named the pigs. Homer was one. Schwartz was one. Penny was one. I still can't remember the fourth pig I had. Uh, but I would, I would enter them in the Gold Country Fair. Right? They were sort of semi-pet sort of animals. And this is only made possible by the fact that I wasn't raised in a Jewish culture. If I had been raised by a Jewish mom and dad, then I would have embraced this very Jewish view of pigs, which would have been unclean, filthy, wouldn't even have them around me, Right? You might also feel bad for the pigs in this story, which is so compassionate of you, right? So sophisticated. But it actually totally misses the point of the pig piece of the story. But what's the point of sending these demons into these pigs? It's to reveal the truth about demons, that they come to steal, kill, and destroy. Watch, into the lake. That's what they do, right? And they have no right to possess people. They have no right to possess people, those who are created in God's image, there's another 4th century Christian preacher that I've been reading named Peter Chrysologus, and he reveals this thoroughly Jewish view of pigs when he says, the demons have fallen from heaven to live in the tombs to end in filth, meaning the pigs, right? In fact, his, his, his uh, quote is pretty powerful. Let me read it to you. He says, the foul-smelling animals are destroyed, not at the will of the demons, but to show how savage the demons can become against humans. They ardently seek to destroy and dispossess all that is, acts, moves, and lives. They seek the death of people in order, or they harbor an ancient enmity of deep-rooted wrath and malice for the human race. Demons do not give up easily unless they're forcibly overcome. They are doing the harm they were ordered to do. Therefore, the foul-smelling animals, he's referring to the pigs, are, are destroyed so that it will be made clear to the demons that they have permission to enter swine, but not to enter humans. It is by our vices that we empower demons to harm us. Similarly, by our power of our faith, we tread on the necks of demons 
They become subject to us under Christ, who is triumphant. So the story then ends with Matthew writing this. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men, as though that's an aside for them. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus, after demonstrating his power to free the demonically possessed, is not celebrated. In fact, he's despised and rejected. The kingdom of God has come in power to the Gentiles, but they send Jesus away because, as it turns out, he's bad for the local economy. And that's what they're worried about. Another gospel account places the size of the herd of pigs at 2,000. So this is not just a couple of pigs. This is a large asset of the community, 2,000 pigs. But it's interesting, is it not, that that's their concern, not that two human beings got freed from demonic oppression. Man, you messed up our economy, Jesus. You totally screwed things up. Would you please leave? That's the first story at the end of which Jesus says, go learn this, I desire mercy. I desire mercy. Here's the second story. Chapter nine, verse one. Jesus stepped into the boat, now he's back into the boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law, these are like theological experts. These are the academicians, right? They say to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So, he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they're filled with awe. They praised God who had given authority to man. This story is massive and deep. There's so much to say about it, but let me just point out a few things. Notice this. Isn't it interesting, first, that it says, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends of the paralyzed guy, what is typically mentioned in the healing stories of Jesus is the faith of the individual, as though that's the critical piece. But here we have Jesus responding not to the faith of the paralyzed man. We have Jesus responding to the faith of the paralyzed man's friends. That's powerful. That'll blow your box open a little bit. As if the one who cannot bring himself to Jesus can be brought to Jesus by another to some degree, apparently. Second, notice this. He says to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So the assumption on the part of the friends is we're going to bring our paralyzed buddy to Jesus so he will heal his body. I can only imagine that's their assumption. And yet the surprise is that Jesus forgives their buddy's sins. And this, of course, creates all kinds of theological dissonance for the religious experts. They're like, what are you doing? And they accuse Jesus of blaspheming. Why is he blaspheming? Because in their mind, he is, he's claiming to be God. 
Because only God can forgive sins. And then the third thing to notice is this. It's interesting that they actually don't accuse Jesus of blaspheming. They just think it. But Jesus knows their thoughts, right? And who can know the thoughts of man except for God, right? So he is like running circles around these guys. Jesus is demonstrating the kingdom of God. He's beginning to restore all things. The sick man is healed of a disease that is not the result of his own sin. It's just the result of the general brokenness of the world, the sin that was started by the sin, uh, uh, the brokenness started by the sin of Adam. So Jesus' words, which offend the religious academics, Jesus' words are just very pointed. He just gets right to the issue. He is going directly to the root cause of the man's paralysis, which is the brokenness of the world. Sin has entered the picture. So Jesus is like, I'm just not going to mess with anything except the actual issue. And Jesus, seeing the faith of his friends, forgives the sin of the sick man. It's amazing. He then stands up, both physically healed and spiritually forgiven. Jesus just takes care of the whole deal. Now, what's interesting about this is that you can argue about or doubt whether or not a person's sins are forgiven. How will you ever know for sure if their sins are forgiven, if they've really embraced forgiveness? You'll never know for sure. You can't see that. But what you can see is physical healing, right? That's a demonstration of spiritual power. So you can see that. That's apparent. This reminds me of my dad's story who receives forgiveness from Christ at about age 39 and then stops drinking. The drinking was the problem, but it wasn't the main problem. Like the paralyzed man's legs were the problem, but they actually weren't his main problem. The main problem, the most important point in both cases was the forgiveness of sins, right? But the healing from alcoholism, just like the healing from paralysis, is something that the man and his family and everybody else can point to and go, something happened. Something real happened. Something physical happened. So probably there's something else spiritual that happened as well. That's the, the physical becomes the sign of the unseen spiritual. Apparently there's something more. So that's the second story. The end of which Jesus says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then here's a third story. Next verse, Matthew 9, verse 9. Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at, a ta sitting at, sitting at the tax collector's booth. From a Jewish perspective, tax collectors, are, they're just the worst. They're the traitors. They're, Jew, they're people of their own race who have sold out to the oppressor, Rome, and are gathering way more taxes than are required of their own people. So they're despised. And Jesus walks up to Matthew in the tax collector's booth and says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And this is fascinating because the Matthew in this story is the same Matthew that is writing this story. It's the same guy. So he's telling his own story about the power of Jesus who called him to follow him in the midst of his sin, not after he left his sin, but in the very midst of it, not, while he, not after he abandoned collecting taxes, but as he was actually in the act. 
This is Matthew's story, and he doesn't hide where he came from, and that's a powerful thing. Verse 10, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Of course they did. All right, these are, these are Matthew's friends. He's one of them, so they're going to come and have dinner with him. That's not surprising that Matthew's eating with tax collectors and sinners. What is surprising and what creates a whole lot of adversity and blowback for Jesus is that Jesus is, e- is eating there with them too. It's Jesus' association with sinners that is so scandalous in the eyes of the Pharisees, which was this real conservative religious group of priests, convinced that the redemption of the world would come when everybody kept the, the law. That's their goal. That's their means to the end. We've got to keep the law perfectly. And here's Jesus, who's claiming to be the Messiah, and he's messing everything up. He's eating with these people. Right? Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is an absolute statement. Like, you're totally defiled at this point, Jesus. And so and then here we come to the point. The point not just of this story, but the point of the previous three stories, and I would argue the point of the whole ministry of Jesus, which is this, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners, All right, so what do, we, what do we do with this? Jesus says it's the sick who need a doctor, just a statement of fact. He says he hasn't come for the righteous. He's come for sinners. That's just a statement of his mission. And then right in the middle is the, are these words of instruction. Go and learn what this means. Not just do this, but go and learn this. Figure out how to do this Effectively, And that, friends, is really challenging. It's really challenging. It's kind of like taking a little kid bowling. You got this long lane. You got this super heavy ball. To even accomplish the point of the sport is impossible for these little kids. It's just impossible. And so somebody had the brilliant idea of creating those bumpers that like... Right? They, fly, they fly up to keep the ball from rolling prematurely in either the left side of the lane or the right side of the lane. And, and sometimes when I come to a difficult teaching like this, like this difficult teaching of Christ, where he says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy. And I'm like, ah, I'm not sure what that means. Well, it helps me to go, okay, I'm going to avoid, I can I start like this. I'm going to avoid the mistake of this extreme, and I'm going to avoid the mistake of this extreme. Send up the bumpers. Let's, let's start with this. Jesus says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy. So here's two possible mistakes that I want to stay away from. One, on one side, I want to be careful not to mistake being nice for being like Christ. Those are not the same thing. Jesus is not facing adversity everywhere he goes because his whole goal is to make everyone happy. If his goal were to make everyone happy, if, his goal, if being Christ-like was being nice, there'd be no adversity. Jesus isn't facing adversity because he's being nice. He's facing adversity because he's rearranging power structures, because he's changing economic systems, because he's disrupting social norms, because he's confronting religious systems that have lost their soul and are bent on self-preservation. Sometimes we Christians miss our calling to make peace 
because we're trying so hard just to keep the peace and not ruffle anybody's feathers and just be nice to everybody. We don't want to get mad at us because we're Christians and we want to be nice. And we miss the calling to restore all things because we won't even call out what's broken. We can't restore things because we're not even saying they need to be restored. We won't acknowledge that. We miss our calling to call people to repentance, to call people to forgiveness, because we're not willing to acknowledge sin. Being nice is not being like Jesus. Let's not mistake being nice for being Christ-like. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is this. Let's not mistake being a jerk for being like Jesus. Right? This is equally destructive. Jesus isn't facing adversity because he's self-centered. Jesus isn't facing adversity because he's brash and rude and has no social knowledge of like caring for people as, as, as images of God. Too often we excuse our lack of love, our sinful attitudes, our self-centeredness, our bad behavior by saying, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just saying it the way it is. And God said there's going to be persecution in this life, so that just must be persecution. Oh, that's such an easy cop-out. That's such an easy cop-out, and it's totally to miss the spirit of Christ. He's facing adversity, friends, because he's reaching people. He's effectively reaching people on the other side. He's healing people on the other side. He's restoring people on the other side. Not, not, he's not receiving adversity because he's being mean. That's not the kind of adversity that's Christian, right, that we should expect as Christians. In other words, you don't have to be a jerk to be a prophet. You don't have to be a jerk to, be, uh, to tell the truth. Being a jerk is not being like Jesus. So let's not make the mistake of falling off the track on this side. Most of us, most of the time, we fall into one or the other well-worn, predictable rut or gutter. Both of these extremes miss the power of what Jesus actually demonstrates in these stories, which is this. Jesus goes to the other side to transform it. Jesus goes to the broken to restore it. That's the hard, narrow way that Jesus accomplishes as he is full of truth and grace at the same time. That's what John says. He's come to live among us full of grace and truth. Jesus welcomes the sinner as he is. That's the grace. And then he leads him out of sin into holiness. And that's the truth. And he's able to do that at the same time without falling into just this mamby-pamby, milk-toast, permissive, tolerant, nice, and this jerk, judgmental, nobody wants to be around that guy, judgmentalism. Jesus gets to the root of the issue, which is sin. He says, I desire mercy. This is important. Mercy acknowledges truth. Mercy acknowledges truth. Mercy acknowledges there's a real consequence to sin. There's real brokenness in the world. It acknowledges that. It does not ignore that. Neither does it stand on the edge of brokenness and say, you're broken, you're sick, you're a sinner. That's not mercy. No, mercy acknowledges the brokenness and the sickness and then dives into the water to rescue the person, gets engaged, gets involved, accepts the adversity and the messiness that all comes with all of that. Mercy enters into the brokenness in order to bring healing. Mercy is rescue. Mercy is help for those who need it. Mercy acknowledges the truth. He's drowning. 
It is not merciful if he's drowning to not say that he's drowning. Oh, don't say he's drowning. That'll be so offensive. Right? Oh, don't say he's drowning. He won't think you're nice. He's drowning, right? It is merciful to acknowledge he's drowning. And then you got to dive in and rescue him. That's also what's mercy. That's what's, that's what's demanded of the merciful person, to be honest about the reality of brokenness and then to dive in and do something about it, to help, to rescue, to pull him out. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. How is it merciful for me to ignore the fact that there's an actual illness? But neither is it merciful for me to acknowledge the fact that there's an illness and not do anything about it, right? I'm not come to call righteous. I've come to call the sinners. Now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. It's the only effective response, right? So here's a last thought. I think the best way and probably the only way to show mercy to people is to actually believe that you yourself need mercy. You got to start there. It's for me to actually be convinced that I need mercy. And that's Jesus's bigger purpose behind all all of these miracles, doing all the right things, making all the right sacrifices. It's never been what God's wanted in his eyes. It's never been God's goal. It's always been about caring for the sick, rescuing the orphan, showing mercy to the widow. Ironically, you can do all the right things for the wrong reasons and get it wrong. There's all these examples in the gospels of that. Gosh, we did all these things in Jesus' name. And Jesus is like, gosh, your heart was never there. You were just checking boxes. Here's the reality, friends. We're the demon-possessed men. We're the paralyzed man. Totally dependent on our friends bringing us to Jesus. Totally dependent on other people bringing us to Jesus. We're the tax collector. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean our lives up. That's where, that's where I show up in this story. We are those in need of mercy, me and you. It's you and me, and we got to start there. Which really, it just takes us to this. What do you think about this? What do you believe about this this cross? About the, the fact that Jesus died? Is that just a bonus at the end of the story? Is that just a an exceptional demonstration of the love of God for humanity? Is that a kind of a gruesome and violent detail at the end of the story that we kind of have to keep our eyes or our kids' eyes from seeing? Or is it critical? Is it needed? Is it essential? Is it demanded? Is it my only hope? What do you think? I'm in desperate need of mercy. We can get so far down the, the, the journey of following Jesus, we can forget the fundamental. And, and as we come to this end of Lent and we begin to kind of, you know, anticipate the sun's about to rise, it's almost Easter. We've got to come face to face with the reality that you and I are in critical need of rescue. We have always been, we will continue to be. We need mercy. And there's no way that we're ever going to accomplish anything close to being a merciful people engaging the world with the message of mercy if we ourselves don't first believe. You know what? At the end of the day, I also need mercy. I'm a person in need of mercy. 
So the invitation this morning, friends, is simply this. It's to empty yourself of any sense of personal merit, any, any, any weird false idea that you deserve this, any hint of entitlement, justification, self-righteousness. You got to empty yourself of all that. I got to empty myself of all that in order to be filled with the mercy of God. In order to be filled with the mercy of God. This basic conviction that I need Jesus. I need him. Not a bonus addition to the top of my highly successful life. No, critical life support level. I need Jesus. His mercy towards me is the reason and the whole foundation for my life. Amen. So let's take a minute to pray. And first, I mean, I imagine for some, maybe uh, you haven't ever acknowledged this basic need of, of uh, need for the mercy of God. And I invite you to consider that. And for others, you're so familiar with these kinds of truths that it's possible you've drifted away from it and uh, you really need to just acknowledge the basic truth of it again. Still, even today, yes, you, yes, me, we're, we're in need of God's mercy. So thank you, Lord, for your amazing love, your willingness to go to the other side to reach those who are hopeless, to value people more than assets and wealth and reputation, be able to see what you've created rather than the sin that we've fallen into. And I just pray you'd be merciful to us. And I pray even more than that, because I know that's the case, I just pray that we would be open to your mercy. Please have mercy on us, God. Bring us, I pray, especially in the next couple weeks, to a place of just real core, honest acknowledgement of our need for you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.